Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Vuk, host of the Tracing Owls podcast. A quirky but nuanced exploration into Fortean philosophy, Tracing Owls focuses on the roles of Mother Nature, the trickster and the experiencer in shaping paranormal phenomena with a healthy amount of humour and humility along the way. Could cryptids, UFOs, high strangeness and para-weird anomalies all originate from the same source? Vuk seeks to catalogue the overlooked, spotlight the disregarded, and show that the cosmic expanse is much greater than our understanding of it. A good example of this are his thoughts on Gaia theory, expanding on the ideas of James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis. This is the focus of the episode, exploring how paranormal happenings could be manifestations in the workings of a vast global consciousness. It's quite the idea to get your head around, and I'm not sure how well I did at that, but it's an interesting conversation nonetheless. Enjoy! Vuk, welcome to the podcast. Hello and thank you very much. In the conversations we had over email, and uh, in your own podcast, you, you mentioned that you approach the paranormal and 14 subjects from a scientific and materialist background. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that and then what drew you to the ideas that you have on Gaia theory? Okay, so uh, whenever I do these things, I always need to put out a disclaimer for people. So I am very loose with my own beliefs and ideas. Like uh, I treat the Fortean as more of philosophy, not, you know, rigid, hard facts and stuff like that. Now, I personally come from, you could say scientific because I studied biology, which is a hard science, but I studied with an education emphasis. So I was studying to be a biology teacher and I worked as a biology teacher briefly for about two years. So uh, right off the get-go, you know, when I was studying biology, I was always emphasizing how do I assume the role of a gateway uh, of science towards the layman public, especially knowing that I would be, you know, teaching kids or teenagers. Um, So I have always been interested in biology. That is my primary interest, not the paranormal, not the Fortean. Uh, The reason I got interested in the weird side of things is because of biology, is because of all these questions I had, like, is this it? It, it? Not like, you know, biology is not, you know, complex and diverse and stuff like that, but 
how do we then explain all of these other things? Um, let's say Bigfoot. Um, I don't see Bigfoot as, you know, an ape in the forest. And I, being a person who knows the biology, know definitely Bigfoot is not a biological entity out there. So what is it? Why are we still talking about it? Why does it have, you know, an all-encompassing presence in the public consciousness? And that's how I came to, you know, the 14 and the paranormal from a more um, psychosocial aspect. I started with biology as a way to kind of rule out things in the paranormal and the 14 as non-scientific and non-biological. So if they are not, you know, scientific, if cryptids are not animals out there that we need to hunt down or discover, what are they? Why are they still a presence, you know, in society? Right, okay. Um, that makes me think about something I think is an, an error. And, I'm, I, and I think we're getting you know, more, more people are, are talking about this and not approaching the paranormal from this perspective is that the paranormal and supernatural concepts are sometimes in culture put to one side. They're not included in what might be called the standard culture of a society. I feel like if you bring it into, a, into culture in general, you, you have a better array of tools to, to try and understand what it is. And there are cultures where that is the case and, and their worldviews um, aren't affected by it. It doesn't sort of make the worldviews less rational because these things, the supernatural concepts, have been included for a long time. I mean, when you talk there about the, the mysteries of biology, I mean, that, if anything, that's the case in point is that there are mysteries everywhere. You can try and separate out what you might call supernatural or paranormal, but that doesn't mean that you parcel off mystery and, and put it to one side. I think we are the ones who are uh, attributing the mystery to the world around us. We should define, like, science is not the truth. Science does not equal truth. Science is just a system of uh, making predictions that can bring us close to the truth or uh, help us uh, manipulate the reality around us in a very efficient way. And, you know, with that, it is very obvious that science is very anthropocentric. It is... Uh, a discipline that helps humans understand and manipulate the world around us for a human benefit. Mm, yeah, definitely. So with your background in, as a biology teacher, was it natural that Gaia theory would be the thing that would intrigue you the most? Yes, actually. So when you're working as a teacher, as I said, you are a gateway of science to the layman public. You are not going to blurt out, you know, academic studies to teenagers. You need to find ways to intrigue them, to lure them into the conversation, you know, acting as a gateway, a scientific gateway. Uh, I recently had the folks from Monster Talk on my show, and we talked about you know, cryptids and monsters oftentimes being scientific gateways, especially to children. Like, no child grows up being interested in in the technicalities of science from the get-go. They always start with the mysterious and the fun, fun and the whimsical. Now, when you're a teacher, you need to utilize those tools in order to teach children. And even as a teacher, your role is not 
per se just to educate a, a student, just to fill their heads with facts. You need to teach them how to utilize the tools that they have at their disposal already to uh, teach themselves. And in order to do that, you, you need to uh, play with their emotions. You need to play with their imagination and intrigue. And uh, if you're talking about some very technical stuff, like, say, the structure of a cell, uh, you would draw a cell and then you would put a smiley face on it, personify it, you know, create a mythology around the cell because it's much easier for the students to learn the technical aspect via storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I'm... Something I, I learned relatively recently was that the term for a cell comes from a monastic concept of, a, of like a little room where a, a monk would would be to sort of pray and do monk things. But I, I hadn't even thought about that before. And then when you look at a cell, it is kind of like a, it does resemble like a small room, I guess, full of all sorts of things. But uh, see, that's wh where we utilize the uh, storytelling and mythology. So as I said, science is anthropocentric. It puts uh, humans at the forefront and center. And let's say we are naming this uh, structure that is the uh, most basic component of all life on Earth. We're naming it after something that is a concept in, in human society, a, a room where a monk resides in. And then you're telling me now, yeah, cells kind of do look like rooms. You see, we are perceiving nature through our own lens. Um, and we are creating a systematical uh, tool set of science to explain nature around us in our own uh, terms in our own perceptions. So science is just our uh, means of understanding the world around us. But what I see as the truth is nature itself. Nature is not science. Science is a human construct, but nature is something wild and rogue and independent of us. Okay. So with your ideas on Gaia theory, um, is that sort of an attempt to understand nature in a non-human interpretive way or is, is that even possible because everything we're doing is interpretation i don't know if it's possible <laughs> so how i got to the gaia hypothesis uh teaching students about all of these different sides of biology and uh by the fourth year of uh, high school when i teach them evolution and that kind of stuff you need to uh, kind of combine everything that they learned throughout the four years of high school. And you start uh, noticing all of these parallels between everything that you taught them. Then you start talking about like hierarchies of life, uh, the cell as the basic uh, component of all life on earth. But, you know, cells you uh, conglomerate to form tissues, tissues, organs, organ, organ systems, organisms, and usually people draw the line there. But in ecology, we have populations, we have uh, biosynoses, ecosystems, biomes, the biosphere, all of these different systems within systems where uh, less uh, complex systems are uh, conglomerating together to create more complex super systems. And that's how I got to the Gaia hypothesis, because if you talk about the biosphere and even the planet as a whole, you can view the planet 
as uh, sum of all of its components. If all of its components are, let's say, all ecosystems on Earth, and all of those components are all populations, and all of their components are all, are all individual organisms, then technically we, as individual organisms, are the cells of something much greater than us, and we are a component of a much larger system, just as the cells are components of the system that is us. Right. Okay. And I know from uh, listening to other interviews that you've done on on other podcasts, you you, you talk a bit about the Gaia theory, and I, I knew this before I came across you and, and your own work. Uh, James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis is they were the people who I guess sort of popularized Gaia theory. So. How do your ideas complement that and take up, take that and, and move it forward or, or move it into sort of different area of, of, of um, uh, looking, some other, looking at other it. sphere? Yeah, other <laughs> sphere, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I am appropriating Gaia as did Lovelock appropriate Gaia and as the Gaia streaming service appropriates Gaia and so on and <laughs> so on. Everybody's appropriating this uh, personification from Greek mythology of Mother Earth. Um, when Lovelock in the late 60s and early 70s proposed his Gaia hypothesis, it was very controversial because he used the name Gaia, because science does not want anything to do with mysticism. And uh, the way he formulated his hypothesis was not very science technical heavy. It was more of a philosophical idea because he was working at the time for NASA as a chemist trying to find biomarkers which you can say if you send a rover on mars you're not gonna look for life on mars like hunt down beings or something you're going to search for chemical biomarkers that are present wherever life is present let's say a lot of methane because something needs to be living to create so much methane um and while working at nasa and while thinking of uh how how to utilize this idea of searching for biomarkers to uh, find the presence of life on other planets. He started (laughs) uh, analyzing our own planet and how everything is intricate uh, and uh, self-sustained on our planet. Like oxygen levels are always 21% and do not change. From what we perceive now, uh, it did change throughout geological history. But like, what is maintaining the same levels of oxygen throughout millions and millions of years? And he proposed that it is life itself, that life on this planet acts as some kind of thermostat, as a self-regulating system of feedback loops. So if, let's say, the conditions of the non-living side of the planet change, Let's say oxygen levels rise. Life on the planet will react to that in a certain way to regulate the oxygen levels to drop to the optimal uh, concentration. And uh, via the oxygen levels dropping, that then influences life on Earth to change and so on and so on. And this is a co-evolutionary bond that has been present since the inception of life on Earth. Life has always coexisted and co-evolved with its surroundings. And it's not just the neo-Darwinistic idea of, oh, the environment is this monolith that never changes, but uh, 
influences life on the planet and life needs to react. Sure, life reacts, life uh, adapts to the changes, but in adapting, it also influences its environment to change. So now the environment changes and now it needs to influence the life to change again and so on and so on and so on. It is so complex and intricate. Hmm. So if, if Gaia is a super organism, how do we go about measuring that? I know that's a, a, a big question, but how, how do we look for a, a super organism from our perspective? Well, that's the tricky question. Uh, the scientific community currently does not approve of the Gaia hypothesis per se. They have kind of rebranded it and called it now Earth System Science, and they do not perceive the planet as a superorganism. They perceive uh, Gaia or this Gaia system as a control system of feedback loops that uh, was formed as a result of life existing on Earth, but not life itself. Right, okay. It's just a fascinating concept to try and wrap your head around. And it's hard not to, when you think about Gaia theory and because it's called Gaia, and like you say, I mean, that's Mother Earth. It's, it's hard not to envisage this being as, a, as that, as a, as a being. And it, I, I guess we're getting back into what you were talking about in terms of interpretation. It's hard to not sort of imagine a super organism, a super being as this incredibly grand version of yourself but i suppose that's in error i mean it, it, it could if it is a, this sort of vast intelligence this being is it is it so vast that that makes it abstract like it's it's too different to us for us to comprehend what all we can comprehend are the systems that that kind of make it up yeah we we can we can comprehend the systems. Um, that, that's the error with uh, science. Everything needs to be reductionist materialist, you know? We need to break everything apart to its tiny pieces, but the point of Gaia is monism. It's the opposite. Uh, it's that everything is unified as one and that there is only one. And everything that we are doing to divide these systems into their basic components is just our artificial way of understanding how the world works. But I see science as, you know, 100% truth, but 1% of the universal truth. Like there is 99% of reality that is beyond the scope of science because it does not adhere to scientific methodology. Mm, and so the other ways of thinking, spiritual magical systems could they complement scientific thinking in understanding these ideas okay so when when i talk about the gaia hypothesis as it pertains to the paranormal and the fortian i'm not saying that you know uh, everything in the paranormal is you know a message from an earth consciousness talking to us it's not like i'm trying to use gaia as the be all end all theory of everything it is just one component, and it is also a model of thinking that we can utilize to maybe better understand concepts in the 14 and the paranormal, because I see, if we already know that uh, there is an Earth system and that there are these hierarchies of systems within systems that uh, control all levels of life on Earth uh, and 
maintain homeostasis, you know, metabolic homeostasis and everything. So everything can work together. We already know this is a thing. Why can't we use that as a kind of springboard to talk about these more metaphysical things that we are not so sure of? Because we are sure of the science. So we should maybe start with what we already have and work from there. I see it as kind of when you have a puzzle of a thousand pieces, a jigsaw puzzle, you're going to look for that corner piece because there's only (laughs) four of them. (laughs) You're going to start with one corner piece and then go from there. Because that corner piece is your tether to some kind of framework of understanding the whole picture. Mm, I like that analogy. Are there things that you think mainstream science could adopt that doesn't like rock the boat too much? I'm thinking in terms of like terminology and just general assumptions. Do you, do you think that there's any way that, that science could embrace some more wiggle room in this area? Uh, okay, te- technically, uh, we would all say yes, but we do not want to acknowledge the fact, the harsh fact, that science, as I said, is a systematical, artificial human construct, and it is a tool. It is not truth. It is just a tool that we use to manipulate our surroundings. So if you want to say that science should utilize, let's say, spiritual thinking um, or mystical thought or philosophy, we would be utilizing that to further our own influence on the planet, because that's what science is. Science is our way of manipulating our surroundings and looking for the most efficient ways of doing that. And I don't see... Uh, that we should be manipulating everything or dominating everything out there. So technically, science could employ more mystical thinking, but that would be then to the detriment of uh, what science is and what it is used for. Right, okay. Something um, I've heard you talk about when you discuss these ideas is that the, the current climate crisis might be something that is being sort of utilized by the the guy in being whatever we like want to call it um, in order to sort of reproduce almost. Can you just go into that a little bit? Okay. <laughs> this is very controversial. You really put me on the spot. Okay. So Usually people who talk about Gaia in these mystical circles, it's mostly talked about in uh, earth-based faith or paganism and stuff like that, you you know, new age stuff um, where everybody wants to personify the planet and, oh, we need to save the planet Mother Earth and this and that. And everybody then assumes because I'm the Gaia guy now that I am way into eco-activism and stuff like that. And my views on all this may be a bit controversial. Yes, we are screwing up the planet very exponentially at a very exponential rate, but I see nature as a force that can self-heal, that can um, uh, fill out nooks and crannies and uh, look for new creative ways to uh, express its own being. And we, as a part of the Gaian whole, are also a component of that. 
We are not the end-all be-all of life on Earth. We are just one of the, ma one of the many components, w one playing card in the deck of Gaia. And Gaia may be utilizing us as, I don't know, creators or uh, imaginators or something. You know, we are the nanobots that are doing things. But in doing so, it is also sacrificing a part of itself. So we may be uh, kind of nurtured into these hyper-intellectual beings that can think and that can manipulate the surroundings. Is it purposeful? I don't know. Scientists like to think that there is no purpose to anything. They are very against anything that is uh, teleological, you know, that uh, anything on Earth has a purpose or that it is destined or planned out. They like to think everything is random. But I'm thinking if we uh, sprouted as the result of these intricate evolutionary uh, uh, relationships through millions and millions of years. Uh, we, whatever we are doing is for the purpose of ourselves, but also for the purpose of the collective whole. Um, so I don't know. Is, is, if there is a Gaian consciousness and if it is influencing us, if we are, uh, driven by these uh, needs that are ingrained into our minds upon birth uh, because of millions of years of evolution to fulfill some kind of natural purpose. What we are doing may be some kind of natural purpose, however <laughs> screwed up that may sound. My theory was that maybe we are enticed to look up, up at the stars because uh, Gaia wants to reproduce by using us as vectors to send, um, let's say, germs onto other planets, to terraform other planets, not for our purposes, but for the purposes of everything we carry with ourselves. Because oftentimes people, uh, when they think of life on Earth, and we think, oh, we're ruining the planet, um, the planet is going to die out because of us. That's not technically true. Like, we we do not want to acknowledge all the microbes or all the bacteria that exist on earth that will <laughs> never go extinct unless, you know, the sun explodes or something. However, we screw up the planet. We, we are screwing ourselves, you know, but we are not screwing over all of the microbes that exist on this planet. Even, and this happened in, you know, geological history many times where like 90% of life on earth went extinct and then the whole earth just found other ways to um, make everything better. And uh, the life that r remained evolved further to diversify into many different forms and fill all the nooks and crannies left over by the prior species that went extinct. So when we're talking about climate change and ecological disaster, we are not t technically talking about how we should save the planet, but rather how we should save ourselves. Yeah, yeah. It's a fascinating concept. I suppose the question is, do you think with these mass extinctions that have happened in Earth's past, would they, other times when the guy in consciousness was trying to reproduce or disperse itself into space, or were they steps towards what's happening now? 
Um, no, because uh, we opened up a new dimension of ex existence and expression for the unified whole. Uh, like if, if we're talking about Gaia, let's say two billion years ago, when where everything was bacteria in in Earth's seas, Gaia obviously cannot traverse the galaxy because life is at the stage of you know simple bacteria that's doing simple bacterial stuff. But what happened, let's say back then, uh, there was something called the Great uh, Oxygenation Event, uh, a Great Oxidation Event. So. Uh, the cyanobacteria, the most primitive form of algae, evolved and started utilizing photosynthesis and uh, using the sun to create lots and lots of oxygen. Uh, everything until then was anaerobic. So respiration, breathing in all organisms was not performed via oxygen because oxygen is very, very toxic. It creates free radicals which damage cells. But once these algae started producing so much oxygen this led to the extinction of about 80 percent of life on earth but those who remained to live could now utilize oxygen which is a much better way of performing respiration because it creates more molecules of atp which is energy um, so the organisms that remained and evolved to utilize oxygen were much more efficient at living. And this opened the door to uh, the evolution of multicellular life. So, you know, all of these single-celled organisms conglomerated into colonies and then started uh, specializing for certain functions and then forming multicellular bodies. So th that's just one example of how, let's say, a mass extinction event killed off so many species, but opened the door for uh, species to utilize an adaptation that allows them to express their biological being in more efficient ways and open doors to new dimensions. Because now single-celled organisms conglomerate into multicellular organisms, and now a multicellular organism lives in a completely different perception of time and space. I see that as another dimension of existence. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I I imagine that uh, the guy in consciousness experiences time. I mean, it must have to, to experience it very differently to to how we do. I mean, do you think it experiences time? I have no idea if time is even a thing. I have a theory <laughs> that the most uh, all-encompassing, most successful talpa that we have conjured is time itself. Wow, I like that idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I find myself thinking about the concept of time a lot too. It's very interesting. But let's say, okay, so a single-celled organism lives for, let's say, one day. I don't know, depending on the species. But uh, we live for, I don't know, 70, 80 years. A redwood tree can live for centuries. A Gaia could live for eons and has lived for eons. So it is like we live on different planes of space and time. At this moment on your body, there are millions of microorganisms just living their life and you are not aware of them because they live in a completely other spatial dimension than you and a perceptual dimension than you. And they even don't know you are alive or that you exist. 
And the same uh, if you compare yourself with, say, a Gaian entity. The Gaian entity is doing its thing, living its life through eons, and you are just one cell in the whole system that lives its life and then perishes, and so on and so on. Mm, yeah. So another question I have is, I suppose all life on Earth, well, most life on Earth requires the the sun to exist. So is the do you think the sun has a, a an aspect to it that could be an entity, a, a being? Um, probably, yeah. I am of the uh, animistic mindset. Everything has a being or a consciousness, just not what we would perceive as a consciousness per our own standards. But if the sun is influencing its surroundings. I mean, obviously with gravity, obviously with uh, its energy enabling all life on earth to exist, then surely it is alive it, if it is influencing its surroundings. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I, I'm a fan of animism as well. I, I do think the sun probably does have some form of consciousness. It's just very different. Yes, I... It is very tough to define what life is. When I studied biology, the definition of life was everything that has a cell as its basic component and has a metabolism. But okay, so you are already <laughs> reducing everything to just a single cell, you know, and I don't know, uh, there are various different uh, things that exist uh, that are much simpler than a cell that could be perceived as living systems. I mean, even the controversy of what a virus is and whether it's living or not, because it does not have a cell, it does not have its own metabolism. But okay, if we define life by something that has its own metabolism, you know, that is self-sufficient in a way that's a closed system that can maintain itself, why are we not perceiving the whole universe then as a living thing? Why do we draw the line at, oh, a human being, a single person, and that's that? Mm, yeah, it's a very good question. I suppose it's drawing lines allows, allows for definitions, doesn't it? It's a crude way, I suppose, of initially of understanding things. Mm-hmm. I see life and consciousness as living in various different domains or hierarchies you know cells live their own life not aware that i exist um they do not they do exist so i may exist but then i exist so gaia may exist and gaia exists so the galaxy may exist and so on and so on it is just like an endless loop of systems within systems where Within each ladder of the hierarchy, these organisms are just living their lives unaware of the hierarchies below or above them. So with our level of consciousness, um, is, the, is, the, is the human fascination with these questions, do you think that that is part of the system or is it sort of a quirk of the system and... I mean, I guess you I mean you were talking about the looking up at the stars and the need to the, the fascination with leaving the planet. So I, I imagine it is sort of part of of what we are. But I'm 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 just trying to sort of get my head around. But what is the question pertaining to uh, like 
our need for domination of the planet or something else? No, no, I, I just mean our fascination in general. So our fascination with other states of reality, like at our level of of understanding things, we 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 sort of speculate, we wonder, we you know, we imagine. Like the, I guess we seem to have imagination. We can think of things that don't materially exist, but they have a quality to them. Oh yeah, I mean, what we're doing now does not materially exist. Language, we are exchanging words. Uh, that have no meaning unless we exist as uh, individuals which already have the established tool set of, uh, you know, understanding uh, the language to interpret it into ideas and metaphors and concepts. Yeah, yeah. So does language even exist because it does not have, you know, a material body or a cell? Okay, I understand your question. So in biology... What people usually like to say the point of life on Earth is reproduction, and I don't see it that way. Uh, reproduction is just a necessity for this beautiful system to keep existing throughout time. But what is the purpose of life is expression. Uh, we can see that nature is a force that likes to fill out every nook and cranny and void in various different uh, colorful, creative ways. There is some kind of innate force to matter in the universe, that matter wants to evolve to be more and more complex so it can better express itself and fill up voids. So why we imagine and why we are creative is because we are expressing the innate uh, force or, or need of matter itself to be creative and to uh, be more complex and to express itself. Now that we have reached some kind of biological threshold where we cannot be biologically more complex than we actually are now, we can transcend that by being very complex culturally and sociologically and artistically. We create uh, new constructs materially, but we also create imaginal realms and ideas and concepts. We have transcended the material world into a more imaginal, vague, abstract world. Okay. In a conversation I listened to that you had, you talked about someone describing how gods existed until we wrote about them. And I, I found that really interesting. And can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that sort of relates to what we're, we're talking about? Okay, that, that is just a thought exercise. I do not technically believe that gods actually existed as an atheist. Yeah, but okay, of course. Let's say a thought exercise. Uh, there, there is some kind of uh, non-corporeal entity that wants to maintain its own immortality, and it utilizes us to do this by uh, solidifying it into a living concept, an idea, a folklore, or a mythology because nothing living as an individual organism or entity can you know, exist forever. But how do you uh, make the entity exist forever by imprinting its own essence into an idea that can spread like a virus through generations? And there is, I don't know if you're aware of this, but like there are ideas of say comic book characters 
who uh, actually stumbled upon the comic book creators and telling them, hey, I want to be in that comic book you're doing so I can establish my own immortality as a folklore. Yeah, I've heard about that. I think Alan Moore said he met John Constantine. Mm -hmm. And I think Neil Gaiman actually uh, stumbled upon uh, Corazon or something like that, uh, a demon that asked him when he would add him back into a comic book. Right, yeah, yeah. I go into the woo and I do embrace this idea that an entity, an organism, is not just a biological organism, that there is more uh, to life and to existence than just being a, a biological entity, Rather, uh, some entities like us uh, can evolve to such a stage that we open up these imaginal realms where we now open up a new dimension for existence and expression of Gaia itself. No longer does she need to express herself just via, you know, materialism that needs millions and millions of years to evolve. Now it can utilize us as these I don't know, computers, projectors, whatever. <laughs> so we can create imaginal realms for her so she may um, further express herself through ideas and concepts that act as entities. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I often come back to the idea that, and this, this sort of links back to what we were, we were talking about, about time. And you were saying that like, time is a, is a tulpa, which I, I mean, I love that idea. I, Time seems so fundamental to our sort of plane of existence, and I'm fascinated by the idea that in you know imaginal places, like where you go when you dream, and fictional universes, even time doesn't really exist. It's a, it's and so and there's also this idea that I suppose if if time doesn't exist, then like all knowledge may exist. Like everything might have happened in the, in a dimension where time doesn't exist everything has happened Mm -hmm. but there's no agency whereas in our dimension because we have time and we're we're, this is sort of i don't know we experience it linearly we don't have access to all knowledge but we do have agency so there's like almost like one universe where there's there's knowledge and less agency and in, in our universe where there's agency and not all knowledge and i it's interesting to think that this all might be part of of something as grand and abstract as what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have this idea that the past does not exist. Like I do not believe in time travel or that it's even possible. I believe everything that happened in the past is actually a component of the present. We are now living uh, in, in the present and there is only now there is no past. There is no future. Everything that happened happens now. It just uh, led us to where we are now. <laughs> so there is no kind of record of the past we can go back to. What we think is the past is actually a, a folklore of the past. It's not always necessarily what actually happens. And oftentimes uh, through you know perpetuating folklores and ideas and myths, we change our perception of the past. And there, there is this idea that my buddy uh, Todd Purse brings up, like, if we now 
let's say we talked about the Kentucky goblins, which were silver colored, but everybody knows them now as little green men. So if they are now little green men, our belief in them as little green men, does that change the past? If we go back to the past, will they, instead of silver, be green? It's a very good question. <laughs> That's a really weird case, though. I, I, do, I do like that case of the Kentucky Goblins. Mm-hmm. So uh, on that note, I, I, I wanted to talk to you about, with all this in mind, what do you think is going on when somebody encounters a, a Bigfoot-like creature? Or you know, or sees a a lights in the sky, or or a lake monster, or a ghost. I mean, I know these are these are broad concepts, and but I'm I'm fascinated to know what these things might represent, what they might mean if they do have meaning. And I, and again, I guess we're getting back into I'm getting back into the whole interpretation thing. But yeah, I'm I'm really interested to know what what you think on that. Yeah, but it is all interpretation. I. I came into the Fortean as some as a proponent of the psychosocial hypothesis. Let's say with aliens, there's the ETH. There, you know, aliens out there. Uh, there's the interdimensional hypothesis, which is very silly to me because everybody wants to put it in a box of oh, it's another place, another dimension, but not explain the science of it. Like if you're talking about science, then explain the science of it. <laughs> Don't appropriate it into a pseudoscience. I like the psychosocial hypothesis because it uh, is very evident to us that these uh, phenomena change alongside us. Like with Bigfoot, let's say. A century ago, people were seeing Bigfoot with clothes or carrying tools. He was much more, you know, humanoid. The more time progressed, the more hairier and animalistic he became. So uh, what is more... Uh, realistic that during the course of a century, a whole population of ape men evolved <laughs> from being more human-like to more ape-like, or that this is something that is influenced and interpreted and maybe co-created uh, by us. So I see everything as a living mythology, a living symbology. I see Bigfoot as a symbol. I see Bigfoot as an archetype. I do not see Bigfoot as a thing out there. Maybe there is something out there, the uh, the elusive other that, I don't know, communicates with us and uh, takes all these ideas from our minds and assumes the shape and form of what we're providing it. But I, uh, But I do believe, like, if there is an other or not, that what we provide from within is a huge component of what's actually happening, that everything is very personal, that it is influenced by us, that it is a reflection, not just of ourselves, but of society and culture as a whole. Uh, a big reason why I got into the 14 and paranormal is because I see the paranormal as having this potential for psychoanalysis, not just of a person, but of a culture as a whole. You can tell a lot about a culture by its folklore. And even by the paranormal phenomena people experience, you can t tell a lot about the person. Mm. Yeah. I mean, do you think that Bigfoot-like entities could be projections from some sort of forest consciousness, the consciousness of the, the communities of trees? 
Yes, I do. I okay. I do believe in that. I do believe in something like a Jungian uh, collective unconsciousness, and I do believe that it is not necessarily limited to just humans, but all life on Earth, especially if we are part of an overarching Gaian consciousness. Like, I am. I am not myself. I am an accumulation of my surroundings. I am a, an accumulation of all the cells in my body that are technically my own, but also the gut flora in my intestines and also all the microorganisms that live inside me and on me and around me and every living thing in my vicinity. I, I think that individuality is an artificial construct and that everything exists as a symbiosis. And of course, uh, we are influenced every second of our lives by all the other living things around us because we coexist with them because we establish relationships with them, whether we are aware of it or not. Right. Yeah. How recently do you think humans started to think of themselves as individuals? Is it recent or is it, is it quite ancient? Well, I think it's quite ancient. I think it's, uh, 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 you know, behavior adaptation that allowed us to survive in our surroundings because, of course, you want your component cells to want to keep living. But for, for every cell in your body to keep living, it must uh, live in this fantasy that it has a choice and that it is living for itself. Right, yeah. I, I'm just thinking of um, so prehistoric cultures, which maybe existed more as a group of people rather than individuals. I mean, I, I'm sure they they still were individuals. You know, they 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 knew that. I just I, I wonder if individuality can be enhanced. Is it more enhanced now than it was in the recent prehistory? I suppose. I think we are opening up to these ideas that we are all unified and part of some kind of system because. I think this behavior adaptation of uh, selfishness is something that was necessary to get us to this point in time and space now where we have all of these tools at our disposal that we created through our own selfishness so we can maybe be much smarter uh, about reality and about ourselves now and utilize these tools for something good. Mm, yeah. Going back to some some Fortean concepts and in, interpreting them through this sort of Gaian lens, I guess. What about ghosts and the sort of the classic interpretation of ghosts as being spirits of the dead? You you, talk, you posted on Twitter about this, and and I, I agree with you that at least not all ghosts are this. There's a wide range of what of things ghosts could be, but but how does um and with with this idea of like you no know, past or anything like that. Mm -hmm. what are the dead okay L let me let me ask you this then uh what about all the dead cells within your body that died throughout your whole lifetime do you ever think about them no or do no, you continue no. existing as yourself yeah yeah of course yeah <laughs> so w what about all the dead like we need to define if dead people are a thing, even if we're talking about all of us being one unified whole, because we could then talk about every dead cell of your body. 
but we we focus on you as a whole like keep uh, you keep existing regardless of whether your cells exist or not uh, i mean whether they're replaced or not yeah yeah i mean i, I think what i was was trying to yeah i know I'm, is, I'm just um, making it, it very complex <laughs> no 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 that's that's fine i i, I get it I, I i think it's more sort of um when people see a ghost and they they don't know who the person was that that ghost is, so that might inform, you know, that that ghost isn't someone who's dead. That ghost is some sort of, I don't know, spirit of the of the place for some reason, and it has this form. I I, I can appreciate that. Yeah, but I I I do believe that it is something that is projected to us, or maybe we are projecting it for some kind of symbolic Jungian reasons. But we are the ones then trying to piece together what is this ghost? Who is this ghost? And then we, you know, go down rabbit holes searching the history of the place and find, oh, this person died. They look kind of similar. And then the more we research into this dead person, the more that ghost starts looking more and more like that dead person. I'd really like to see an experiment done of, say, um, using cases of people seeing a ghost a century ago and comparing with what people see now. If there is any kind of visual change in the ghost, then that certainly is not a dead person because it's changing, you know? It is something that is co-created with us. Yeah, yeah. I, a type of ghost that I... And it's something that reported a lot here in the UK, are uh, ghost monks. And I, I don't think that they're the ghosts of dead monks. I think that they're some sort of hooded spirit figure. Well, I mean, it, it itself is an archetype, a hooded monk. It's an idea. It's a, it's a broad concept that you can attribute anything you want to. Yeah. And, and I was reading an article in 14 times about this recently, and there's a, a type of deity in, in ancient Rome called the Genai Kukulati, and they are these sort of hooded figures and they've not been found much like they've been found on the remains of temples and things like that but they look very much like what you might think of as a as a sort of ghost monk but it's not it's this sort of it's this sort of deity essentially yes and uh, this is the problem that we see uh, especially like with cryptid guys um they see these commonalities, let's say uh, Bigfoot-like creatures all around the world, and all of these different cultures and folklores having their version of a Bigfoot thing. But then they say, oh, that is a Bigfoot. That is a Sasquatch. No. These are things that were formed from the basic archetype of a wild man into an archetypal image, which is the archetype filtered through the social and cultural and historical context of a specific culture into a specific thing that is their own cultural thing. Um, so w when we're talking about these commonalities and comparative folklores, we need to take into account when we're talking about other cultures, let's say these hooded figure gods of, of Rome, we can't say, oh, those are the ghost monks or, oh, the ghost monks are that. No, there are two different things that have similar origins, similar Jungian archetypal origins, but have been molded into different things by the cultures within which they exist.
So we should not culturally appropriate when talking about comparative folklore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So we're almost out of time, but I know that you're not only someone who's been having those ideas about Gaia theory. Um, you also have your own podcast, Tracing Owls, which I really enjoy. Um, just talk a little bit about that and why why is it called Tracing Owls to begin with? Okay, this is very interesting. So I started Tracing Owls as a kind of spinoff of my old show, Darwin's Deviations, which was a parody show about weird biology. And during that show, I was kind of, you know, transforming biology and all these plants and animals into archetypes and characters and having fun with them as a teacher should do, but not as offensive as I did. (laughs) But um, I did a spinoff, Tracing Owls, from this idea that I had of Maybe the Flatwoods Monster and Mothman were, you know, just owls. And the normal skeptical version is, okay, it's owls, who cares, move right along. But I see that, sure, it's an owl, but it's an owl that transcended its biological existence into the archetypal, into the folkloric and mythological existence, where now, 70 years later, we're still talking about this Flatwoods Monster, which was probably an owl. Who cares? The owl existed for like 10 years and died in miserable biological existence, but it transcended that into a folklore that I am now from Bosnia, half the world over, still talking about this dumb owl that existed 70 years uh, ago in America. So I see that as very wonderful. I see all these monsters, cryptids, these ghosts and entities and aliens and UFOs as nature transcending its biological existence into a mythological one. So that's the concept of tracing owls. Uh, We are trying to trace the outlines of nature itself into monstrous over-exaggerations and incorporate that into new mythologies. Excellent. Well, like I say, I I really enjoy your show, Vuk. It's great. Thank you. (laughs) This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, no problem. Um, I just hope it was not as rambly (laughs) as I felt. If people want to find out more about you and your podcast, how best do they do that? So you can search for Tracing Owls wherever you're listening to this, except if it's on YouTube, because I I don't want to be on YouTube for some reason. Um, Or you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Tracing Owls. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put that info in the show notes. Thank you, Vuk. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Vuk. His approach to understanding Fortiana is a refreshing one, so definitely check out Tracing Owls for more of his thoughts on a wide variety of interesting subjects. Please also rate and review this episode of Some Other Sphere as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at spherehq, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.